I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Aaron Fjord, co-founder and CEO of Panorama Education, a fast-growing ed tech company based in Boston and born out of Aaron's experiences as a successful student advocate while attending public high school in Los Angeles. Aaron built Panorama to help make education better for kids and to include students in the process of assessing and improving the way schools work. Over time, the Panorama platform has evolved to serve 1,500 school districts across the country with functionality that helps assess and impact student success and the social emotional well being of students, teachers, and other stakeholders. Erin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Joe. So it's great to have you here. We're going to talk about education from a different point of view, because you sit on data, which is very interesting to us. But to start out, can you talk a little bit about the history of Panorama? You started it when you were very young, you were still at Yale, and you started, I think, out of inspiration that came from your own experiences in the LA County School District. So maybe just help set the stage for how this all started. Absolutely. So um, I'm in Boston now, but I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, and in high school, sort of found myself at one of those large LA public high schools. We had about 5,100 students at my high school, so we had this massive campus. And the sort of place where we had, you know, about 1,600 kids in my freshman class, about 800 students walked the stage senior year. And sort of this classic high school, I had an extraordinary principal, great teachers, but like pretty tough place to be a student. And so in high school, you know, life is strange. I got recruited, uh, as you mentioned, LA's got this history of students organizing for better schools. And so in high school, I got recruited as a student organizer and we were organizing you know, rallies, petitions, sort of everything under the sun, trying to give students a voice in Los Angeles school and make school better for students. And so that was my first foreign education. And then fast forward years later, I was a, a junior at Yale, had been organizing students for about seven years at that point. Realized at this moment of realization that I had loved the student activism, but we hadn't actually gotten a ton done from the student perspective and decided to start a, a little project at the time, helping some local districts make change by partnering with the district instead of organizing students. Um, and that was sort of the seeds of Panorama back in 2012. Right. Well, let me just go back for a second. So the students, we often hear from educators, they want student voice at the table and students involved in decision-making. And, and yet your experience was that in outcomes, it maybe didn't play out that what students were saying and wanting was occurring. There's, there's a very big beat around right now, loud beat around students and their involvement in Boston public schools and shaping the direction of that. And, and so I'm curious, what's your point of view on how well today education and educators use student voice versus what the potential is? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, something as you're referencing, right, really good teachers are always seeking out student voice in the classroom. They want to understand what from students. Really good principals have a pulse on what their school is, what's going on, what students are feeling. And I think students can offer insights on what's working and what's not working, what students need. I think. We saw during the pandemic, like I think actually Boston did a great job of reaching out to students and families to understand like, what do you need and how can our district help? And that's great. Yeah. I think when I grew up in LA culturally and it's a very different time in Los Angeles, but culturally in LA, when I grew up, like student voice works when adults 
like facilitate and hear and deeply respect and value voice from students. There's a difference between inviting a student to speak and truly hearing students. Yeah. Um, and when I was growing up in LA, the culture was very much, so in California, there's like actually a law that says students, if they petition for it, are entitled to a seat on their school board in California. It's an amazing law. It's a civil rights law yeah. in California. When I was in high school, we brought the school board 10,000 signatures from across LA and they refused to put a student on the board. And that hmm. was like the student voice culture. They said, we, they literally told me at 17, you can sue the district if you wish to affect this change, which is crazy, right? And by yeah. contrast, you have like San Francisco and Long Beach and Boston like all, and DC all put students on the board voluntarily. And so that was the culture I was in. Of course, it's different in LA. Now LA has this really fantastic student board member position that's been tremendously meaningful. And so I think my takeaway has been that really strong educators have always listened to students, mm -hmm. but what it takes is a systemic culture of like really hearing students and like, you know, that's why Boston has had a student member for many years. And I think LA is now in this place where they have a similar appreciation for student voice. So that's interesting. And and on the other side, my other question was more tactical, which is just how big is Panorama now? I mean, you, your growth has been extraordinary. And where are you? Are you in big, big districts and small districts, urban and suburban? Just talk a little bit about, I mean, from a data set perspective, what, what school districts are you covering? Yeah, so, so I'm, I mean, I'm, one thing I'm really proud of, so we serve about 13 million students across the U.S. So about 24% of students wake up and go to a school that's using Panorama. Um, what I'm excited about, though, is that we serve now students in all 50 states, all shapes and sizes. And it's pretty exciting. We've now got seven of the 10 largest districts in the U.S. who use Panorama. But also, if you go, all, we're all over, like, rural Alaska, all across Hawaii, all shapes and sizes, you know, Massachusetts, we're doing great work in Boston and also great work in Wachusett and Pittsfield, sort of much smaller districts and other parts of the state. And so I'm very proud that we're now kind of serving every shape, size, location, locale, you know, student population all across the country. Do we look the same no matter the size and shape and economic and racial makeup of school districts from a data standpoint, or, or do you see things that are different in certain types of different districts that from others? It's a good question. I think, just so fundamentally, I think student needs are generally pretty similar across districts. Like the basic things that students need are important. And yeah. I think we forget that most districts have so much diversity inside of the district like there are very few districts that look the same across a district. And so part of Panorama is helping the district see, you know, the diversity and perspectives inside of the district. And so we don't see, you know, it's interesting, but when I look at the work happening across states, across regions, across sizes, it's actually pretty similar, right? The work in Boston looks similar to work we're doing in many parts of Texas. And I think it reflects the fact that like kids' needs are generally pretty common. The important thing though is understanding that inside of a district, there are so many groups and perspectives and experiences and so many equity priorities. We wanna make sure that every group of students in a district is getting an equitable access to opportunity and education. So maybe talk a little bit about the, how the platform works. So what are the yeah. components of it? How do, you, like, how do you get data that helps you understand? Is it, is it equitable? Are all students accessing what they should access? Just talk a little bit about how the, the software actually works. Yep. So the way Panama works is, is we do kind of three different things. So first, 
we want to understand what the environment and culture is like for a school. Are there relationships? Do students belong? And so we help schools run surveys of students, parents, and teachers to get voice from everybody in this community and really understand like, what is it like to come to school at this school every day? And you know, this is actually one of the biggest things we can do to improve outcomes for students is not curriculum, it's about the school environment they go to school in. Um, right. And you know, across the US, we actually survey students and families and teachers in 50 languages across the country to make sure that everyone's voice is heard. Yeah. And so, and then next what we do is we have tools that schools can use to understand social emotional learning and well-being of students, um, which of course has been especially always important, but especially important over the past year. And so we understand how's the school doing, how is every student doing? And then we also have a tool that lets schools, you know, one of the things in education is information about students is spread across so many different systems. You've got a math system, a reading system, an attendance system, and we pull together all of this data about a student into one place. And the purpose is so a teacher can understand, you know, everything about like, how is seventh grade Jill doing? They can now right. understand English and math and social emotional and family engagement. Um, and we can become a hub for teachers to understand and support their students. So you're pulling in a data set that's just coming from the student information system. That's, I would imagine, grades and other attributes to that student. And then you're running surveys, it sounds like, across the whole community. And do you find that the feedback from any particular sector, from teachers or students or parents is most useful? I mean, it totally makes sense that you're doing, doing it across all of those voices, but is there one that's usually kind of the, the leading thematically, the one that gives you the most understanding of how a school can get to where it wants to get to? You're asking me to pick among my, my favorite children, Jill, of all these three groups. So I'm just so curious, like is the parent's point of view about what happens in a school more or less accurate than the students or the teachers, or maybe it's just that it has a different flavor and so they're all important. No, it's no, it's pretty interesting. I mean, obviously my bias is like student voice is the most important thing here, but I, I think they tell you different things. And I think it's interesting when you think about, I love the way you framed your question about what helps you make a school better. So for instance, student, like students will tell you how they're experiencing school, but in many ways, it's a lagging indicator of how teachers are experiencing school. Right, so if the school is a workplace culture where teachers don't feel valued and teachers are stressed, students will feel that and tell you that. And so getting teachers is so important. And so from my perspective, it's like everyone creates this composite of a picture. And then par what parents tell you, in my opinion, is that parents tell you what they're hearing about school. And you also have to learn, you know, the best schools engage their parents. So for yeah. me, what the parent feedback tells you is how do you get parents more involved? So for instance, like some mm. of the best schools, we have this like image of parents being disengaged from school, but it's often about belonging for parents. Like when you walk onto campus, does a parent feel welcome or is a parent intimidated or left out? And so, so part of our hope is to triangulate like what is a thriving school community? And then each of these groups can tell us how the school is serving this community. And it's like putting together a piece of a puzzle for how to make the school stronger. In, in actuality, like in a place like Boston Public Schools or in a smaller district, are teachers looking at one take coming out of pan Panorama, which is much more specific to their students and administrators are looking at a more holistic take, either how is the school functioning against our goals and objectives for the school? 
And is there a layer two where the district, like the superintendent would be looking at the entire district? And how, what are those different, are those different views? Do they, are they coordinated? How do you see the humans actually interacting with what you're providing for them? Absolutely. So first, I mean, I think everything is based on what the district's priorities and framework is. So like in Washington, DC, they have this great framework called loved, challenged, and prepared. Hmm. Every student is going to feel loved, challenged, and prepared. Hmm. Um, and I'm like a huge fan of that, right? So at all levels of the district, that's how teachers, principals, district leaders organize their work. And so for Panorama, that's also what you'll see in Panorama. But to your point, the Panorama view is aligned around a shared mission here. But we also, of course, you see different things to your point. And so um, a teacher, for example, is seeing each of their students individually, but also their classes. A principal, of course, is seeing their school. A district leader sees the district. And the other thing I'll say at all of these levels is that from an equity perspective, we also think it's really important to look at groups of students. And so a principal, for example, in Panorama can see how are my English language learners uh, being supported at my school? Or a mm. principal can actually pull up and see, you know, I have students at my school who are currently experiencing homelessness. How are, how are these students doing? Where are they thriving? How do I support them? And mm. so part of our focus is to both look at groups of students as well as this like student and school centric view. So just sticking on, you know, Boston, because I, I know it better than other districts in terms of specifics, there are, there are very high performing schools that perform well on state metrics, you know, and achievement around math and language arts, for example. And then there are extraordinary, like some of the lowest performing schools also exist in the district. And maybe, and maybe, I mean, DC is a pretty big district as well. And I'm sure they have that same dynamic. So when you have, when, when a goal is set, like loved, challenged, and prepared. How do how do you see your clients using that to frame what they want to see out of high performing schools versus low performing schools? And how do they use the tool to kind of judge whether or not any school or part of the district is moving in the direction? And maybe maybe even the high performing schools on some of these metrics are not hitting them. So how how does um it's just so interesting, right? Because I I understand how one would use data and analytics to run companies, right? But one of your metrics is always revenue, as as you know, and uh, right. And then and so but these these student success metrics and social emotional health and well being and and learning, how easy are those to gauge when you're trying to shift in, I mean, Boston's 125 school district where nothing's performing the same as anything else. And so how do, how do you work with clients to help them really take advantage of everything that this technology has to offer? Absolutely. So first, I'm a really big believer in the power of growth and progress. And I like, I, I hate thinking about schools in terms of low and high performing and more about like how much are they getting better every year over time is sort of, my, and, and part of that, right, is also from a student perspective. I remember my high school was labeled by US News and World Report by SoCal's biggest dropout factory. I'm like, it sucks when like your school gets labeled in a certain way. And so as a high school freshman, that was the ridiculous thing. Um, yeah. but, but I also do think it's, it's a real dynamic. And so for me, I'm all about like, how does every school set a goal and achieve that goal? 
And in many ways, I think the best schools don't try to boil the ocean. They don't say, hey, we got to fix these 20 things. You pick Mm -hmm. this one thing. And I think the hard part here is deciding what the school has to grow up. And something I think we've discovered is in our data is that it's often counterintuitive what the school should focus on. So for example, um, we had a, a school um, on the West Coast that recently was focused on math, it was like their outcome they want to see. Okay. T- turns out it actually is rare that focusing on math is the best way to improve your math scores. So this school, for example, focused on sense of belonging as the outcome because the students are constantly feeling they don't belong, feeling imposter syndrome in math class, they're not going to learn math. And so for me, and the reason why I say this to your question is that I think high level performing schools tell us the core academic outcomes, but it doesn't tell us what's working and not working coming in the door, right? You actually could have a, you could have a high performing school that has low sense of belonging and high stress for students, for example. And so part of what I wanna help schools figure out is where should they focus to change the outcome they wanna see? And then you might get, and you change the equation where now you've got a school that instead of being a low performing school, it's now a school that is focused on building belonging for students. And that is like so much more motivating for a teacher, for a student, for a school. And that's when you see real progress. What's been interesting is I've been really impressed to see how malleable these things are. Like yeah. intuitively, I've been shocked, but like I've seen schools, you know, radically change the percentage of students who belong in like a year I've seen which is crazy yeah so a lot of these things are are fairly like basic and interpersonal and they take focus so for example this is like way in the weeds but um we had a school that had a problem students reported not having strong adult relationships not belonging yeah. They were like, we're not going to overthink this. They went in the teacher's lounge, printed out a roster of every single student, had teachers initial the students who they knew well, circled all the kids who didn't have any teacher next to their name, and they went mm-hmm. out and built relationships with those students. And it's so simple, but it was highly effective. Wow. You know, it was some of our districts have a program, which I thought was interesting, which is that they realized that parents only get calls home when their students do something wrong. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't do a great job for kids to feel good about themselves. And so the school decided beginning of the year, every teacher was going to call every student or every family was going to get one teacher call that was going to be positive feedback. Mm. And it was amazing what that did for both parent engagement and for student belonging, because every student in the first month of school was at the dinner table and had a parent tell them, I heard you did this really well at school. And it was so confusing and so surprising to everybody. It had this big effect. And so I think things like that, these seem like very complex, hard systemic problems, but you can actually make a ton of impact through these very simple actions. And that's part of what we wanna help guide schools towards. It's not not making this sound easy, but just like, if you focus and do these things, we can make a ton of progress. So, and I know you, your company Panorama now does that sort of lessons learned as part of its overall offering. So have you like lots of software companies created a consulting arm that also works with, like does a deeper dive on the, how do we turn this data into action side of things? We have, Um, and so as you're referencing, you know, we have both inside of our product, anyone who logs in will see recommendations for anything we surface. And we've basically been collecting kind of the best practices across the country and partnering with a bunch of organizations to put their material in Panorama. So when you mm-hmm. log in, you'll now see like this incredible resource library, we call them playbooks, 
Well, the other thing I think you're referencing, which is spot on, is that um, there's a huge value to like human training and partnership in making this happen. Like we say Panorama is like part tech, but it's like part people. Um, yeah. And so um, we have a team that's about 20 people that travels across, or I guess used to travel across the country, will soon be traveling across the country, but a team that we call the teaching and learning team that is on the ground in districts, meeting with superintendents and then holding trainings for principals and teachers. And so literally for a tech company, it's kind of crazy, but we now have 20 people plus more who are just spending time in person, helping show people how to drive change. Um, and the impact has been extraordinary. Yeah, I don't think it's crazy at all. I mean, especially, when, when you're able to break it down into actionable, like easy to, easy to digest, you know, easy to execute pieces that all sewn together are going to move a district towards, you know, positive improvement. That's, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary because I think, I think what happens so often and watching what's happened in Boston as it's moved through several superintendents over the past number of years, it just feels like one big iceberg that's super hard to move, right? And as opposed to, and so I think consulting from this perspective is really important in terms of how you help truly shift education and that it really is about human intervention at some level. And maybe what, I, what I'm so curious about is that it's not predictable what you actually need to shift in order to get the outcomes that you want to get. And so that's fascinating. Do you expect then that you'll, that must be a big opportunity for Panorama in turn, on, on the outcome side and the consulting collaboration side? I think so. I think what I love about most of our work now is we're actually, we set up our team, we use the language, we're building capacity in the district. So in yeah. most cases, we're not coming in and saying, hey, you've got to do this. We're hosting a workshop with their principals to help every principal set goals in their school. And then we also do follow-up coaching. But part of our focus here is like, we want to help schools set goals that they know will move the needle for them. And so mm -hmm. that's what, it was what gets me really excited is that we can do this sort of data platform core operating system for a district. Then mm -hmm. we can help kind of empower leaders to set the right goals. And then once they have their goals, we can then help them also achieve them. And that system, I think, is actually how you can make really enduring change in the district. Yeah, that, that, that makes total sense. So let's talk about social emotional health for a second, because that's a big part of what you help detect and, mm -hmm. and understand with schools. And I'm wondering how the world looks through your eyes post-pandemic. What happened you know, last year as you were serving students? And do you have a point of view on what we should be expecting you know, in heading into the next year? Yeah, and so I think you know, pre-pandemic, there was this huge focus on social emotional learning and well-being in schools. What yeah. happened over the past year was this next level elevation. I think also communities saying, hey, this is what we need for schools. And I think a lot of our districts felt sort of validated that the work they had been doing is now front and center, like in the front page of the newspaper, literally speaking about being important. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing when I, when I think about um, both social emotional and this fall in particular, I sort of think about three kind of high level questions. The first one is, what are the social emotional skills that we want students to be developing? A lot of these are skills. 
you think about how to understand and manage your emotions, for example. And so, you know, we do a lot of work around skill building in schools for students, recognizing these skills matter in school and out of school. Mm -hmm. The next part, I think, is we want to understand just like how are our students doing? Are they feeling anxious or joyful? Are they feeling optimistic? And where do we need more support, right? Like what, what are students walking into the front door with at our school? And they're very different experiences, right? You've got students who, you know, some of whom are kind of spending the summer at summer camp, seeing their friends the first time, going to be back joyful. Others who like lost family members because of the pandemic. And there's very different experiences. Yes. Um, and the third thing I think we think about a lot here is then how do we create the right environment for students in the, in the mm -hmm. fall? Right. I think there's an interesting question. Part of the environment is this health and safety question, but the other part is like, what does school feel like for students as they come back? And yeah. how do we um, create a supporting, loving, stable environment for kids? And so there's long for me, it's like this question about social emotional skill building, understanding well-being about how our students are doing. And it's gonna be very different across students. And then finally understanding how does our school environment then kind of shape and support that. Do you think the pandemic from a social emotional perspective set us back as a country in education or do you think it actually opened up some new opportunities that we as a country will just go after in terms of, because I'm thinking about there's so much funding flooding into public education right now. And so it, does this actually give us a chance to leapfrog over where we were and, and really be thoughtful about tackling this as an issue? It's very hard to, I'm a silver linings person. It's very hard to find it as a positive, but I, I do think there's something here, which is that, um, you know, I think there's this idea about schools focusing on the whole child. And I think, right, like in, you know, the early 2000s, No Child Left Behind was like reading, writing, arithmetic. And that was like school. And I think in some ways we're emerging this year in the culmination of like the counter to that, which is a whole child approach to education, which is mm -hmm. where we say that academics are tremendously important and they have to happen in parallel and in context of social emotional development. Mm -hmm. And what I think is gonna happen, and now we have resources too to do it. And I think that to me is going to be a positive if we leave with a school model that embeds social emotional learning. I think what's interesting this fall is that a lot of our districts are thinking about how they think about academics and social emotional development intertwined versus separate. And I think that's gonna be a really powerful shift. And I think if there is a positive of this additional funding, we can actually now legitimize, and I think, I mean, teachers have been doing this forever, right? But we can now like systemically say that our schools are about building the whole child, including academics, including social emotional, and that will be a really powerful legacy of the new funding we have this year. Yeah, that's interesting. So, and then let's talk about outcomes for a second, because another thing that Panorama helps schools with is helping to predict and improve student outcomes. So that is students going all the way through the K through 12 system and, and out into the world. I think many districts are, Boston did this as well, just removed all requirements for graduation during the pandemic. And you know, I want it, it resulted in the highest graduation rates ever, because basically everyone, if you showed up, you graduated, I think. And so how do you think about graduation rates as a metric of student outcome success? Should there be other metrics? And maybe also help me think about 
my understanding is that parents believe that their children are on grade level and moving through school. And in a place like Boston or other places where you have very high performing high schools and very low performing high schools, they don't really catch up to where the students' outcomes are likely to be until they recognize that their students have been placed in a high school that's either very high performing or not high performing. And I know you don't like the high performing versus not. No, no, it's fair, it's fair, yeah. Outcomes are so different in those types of schools. And so maybe just to start on just the topic of, is graduation rates even a metric that we should be using to judge success in schools any longer? It's a fair question. So I think, so I think graduation rates are important. Personally, I, I don't think it's the most important metric. Like I think in some ways, the question of graduation rates is sometimes, so I mean, it's important because if a student doesn't have a high school diploma, it's very hard to thrive in the world, right? And I, I, don't, I don't believe that every student, I don't believe that every student has the same post-graduation path or every student has to go to college, anything like that. But I do right. believe that every student is gonna need a high school diploma to succeed. And so yes. to that end, I think we have to be tracking how many students are achieving diplomas. And that's really important. Yeah. Um, I think to me, the more interesting question is to ask, what are the actual things that we need our high school students to have leaving high school and okay. to understand how we're building those things for students? Yeah. Um, and I know it's, I think the problem with graduation rates, right, is like, it's kind of a, a circular question, which is um, we have this tension between wanting every student to have a diploma and wanting to have a very aggressive vision of what preparation looks like. And, sure. and, that's, and that's tough. Um, and so for me, let's track graduation rates because diplomas matter a great deal. But let's actually look at what are the bucket of like skills and experiences that our students have leaving high school. Um, yeah. And I think it's actually okay if our target for that is different from our graduation target. Um, and so for me, then I want to look at things like, you know, I want to see social emotional development. I want to see advanced coursework. I wanna see students doing some degree of career exploration. I'd wanna see students having a plan. I've mm -hmm. seen some districts just have a target that like every student is gonna have a plan for after they graduate, which mm -hmm. I think is an excellent way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, no judgment what the plan is, right? The plan, the plan could be going straight to the workforce, plan could be a four-year school, could be vocational tech, but have a plan. And to me, I think actually this is the really interesting future of education exercise, which is like, let's have a real conversation about what are the things we actually want our students to graduate high school with. Yeah. And that I think is the more important conversation that we actually probably should be having over the coming years. Do you think that's happening in pockets in the US right now or not happening at all or happening too much or too little? I think it's happening a lot across the country. I mean, it's interesting, even um, in all corners of the country, right? Like we see uh, Kansas a couple of years ago launched kind of a future-ready Kansan vision or the education department at the state level went on a tour across the state to redefine what students needed in the modern world, uh, yeah. which I thought was a really funny thinking about it. And we see a bunch of districts asking like, what is our profile of a graduate? Um, including Boston doing really thoughtful work on like profile of a graduate. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, I think to me, um, I would love to see a little bit more like community support and engagement for this effort of saying like, Hey, like, yeah. let's really get behind like supporting and resourcing our schools to create like this next vision of graduation. 
You know, it's interesting what you mentioned about community. So in, when you say community, you don't, I'm guessing, just mean families and caregivers. You also probably mean businesses and academic institutions and, and others who are going to receive these students into the world. I think it's got to be everybody. Um, yeah. And I think we've got to ask, not what do you need now, but like, what do you need 20 years from now? Yeah. I worry a little bit that we're building our education approach for like kindergartners for a world they're actually never going to experience because they're going to experience like 20 years. Right. And I think that's going to take a degree of collaboration. And I recognize there's like this challenge. We've got to both operate high-performing schools today while also thinking about what the workforce is gonna need 20 years from now. And I think yeah. that's sort of the provocative question. Yeah, I think you're right. Do you think it'll look very different? Just you sit in the middle of education and technology. Um, so you're privy to lots of conversations about the future of education. Do you think it look 20 years from now, 25 years from now, will it and should it look very similar to what it looks like today? Yeah, um, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like thinking about Panorama, for example, um, you know, this year we're, we're hiring north of 150 people on the team. Um, and, you know, like everyone else, I think we are looking at like um, just this massive push to get like as much talent as possible in, in the workforce on the tech side of things. You, you and everyone else. Yeah. I said everyone else, right? And, and, and like, I mean, it, we're on track for it, but it's like kind of, you know, it's, it's amazing the feeling that we feel like as an employer in Boston, I'm thinking about like, great, like I, I need to have, a, I want 177 really talented people that we are able to hire here. Yeah. Um, great problem to have in this country, right? But it's, it's important. I think, so my, my take is a couple of So I think one, I think we have to recognize that the world is going to be changing rapidly. And so social emotional skills actually matter a greater deal because we have to build kind of the skills for rapid adaptation in the world. I think mm. also there becomes a premium on things like creativity and teamwork and collaboration, sort of the, the social emotional skills that are like very human centric. And I think that matters a great deal. Um, I think also there's this piece about what are the core like foundational skills like in some ways, knowledge is gonna matter a little bit less when you can like Google it, but it is going to matter that you understand how computers work, you understand critical thinking, basics of math, basics of reading and inquiry. And so I think those skills become really important. And I actually think one of the social emotional outcomes that I think is positive is that this focus on social emotional learning, I think does a great deal. We kind of talk about it in the short-term sense, like what do students need this fall? But I think we actually are doing a really good job thinking about these are the skills students will need 20 years from now in the workforce. So this is this is maybe an oddball question, but it makes me wonder when you when you think about your own product, do you eventually feel like there's any need to have actually an interface or a lens into panoramas data and analytics for families and caregivers? And, and totally opposite side, but speaking to the future, I mean, should mayors have and city leaders have a view into what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I, um, yes, I think all of the above. I think first, I'm obsessed with the possibility for student agency over education. And so yeah. 
I am too. I, I, it's ironic, right? But we actually don't have like a super strong student-facing product. We were kind of an educator-facing product. And for a yeah. student voice organization, that always felt like kind of a painful irony to me. And so um, I would love for us to have a powerful like student-facing panorama that helps students really drive their own path forward in an agency perspective. Yeah. Um, I think family is super important. And then the mayor's thing is big. One of the coolest things I saw was that we actually had a lot of city district partnerships um, through the pandemic period I hadn't seen before. Like in one of our super large districts, we were partnering with like the mayor and the superintendent on the like remote learning survey. And that was great. That was a level of partnership we didn't always see. And so, I mean, I think it's huge, right? Like I, I think about, I think the possibility for like mayors playing this role and thinking about what are the long-term needs of a thriving city and yeah. kind of partnering with school leadership on that and like Panama data being a source of that would be this really exciting possibility of like how we build a thriving community versus just talking about like, is the school producing what we need? Yeah, ex- yeah, I totally agree with that. All right, last question. I, I think I could talk to you forever. Hopefully we'll, we'll talk again soon. What do you think, you know, it's summer now, we're heading into a fall, we're post pandemic. It'll probably be a little rocky in the fall still. What's your point of view on, based on everything that you're hearing, is like the one or two things that school districts should be focused on right now to provide welcoming, caring, loving, productive environments for kids in the fall? Yep, I think, I think one, I want to push a little bit on this kind of post-pandemic feeling. I think one of the most important things for schools to appreciate is that for a lot of students, it's not going to feel post-pandemic, you know, especially across the country. And that I I think it's going to be a gradual coming out of it. And I I know I'm just picking it up, but I think it's actually very important that schools understand that from a student perspective, one, a lot of students are not going to be vaccinated and that's going to be a different experience for students. And actually students are experiencing a world where their adults are vaccinated, may not be vaccinated. Um, And so with this, you match your question, I think what's important. So I think one, this deep focus on like understanding and caring for students about just understanding where is every student at? What are they experiencing, right? Some students can show up to school, can't wait to see their friends. Oh my gosh, so excited. Others are gonna be scared and nervous. And we've got to understand that every student from a different place, different experience, and that they all had a very different past year and a half. Yeah. Um, and that whatever in, you know, gaps of equity and experience and community are gonna be high. And so to me, the number one thing we've got to do is now understand all of the experiences that are walking in the door and appreciate the fact everyone is in a different place. And I think too, our ability to make schools this place of sort of this like place of like refuge and joy and coming back to normalcy. And as part of that, really focusing at the bottom of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this ability to like build relationships and belonging is gonna matter. And then three, this is important, I think it's important that we also start right back in academically. I think there's this temptation to say we've got to wait, but I actually think the best way to rebuild and kind of to build agency for students is to show that like, we're going to dive right back in and like, we're going to be supportive and caring and like, you are ready to learn. Like, let's not talk about learning loss. Let's talk about like, we're ready to hit the ground running. And I know these are all kind of in tension with each other, but I think if we do this effectively, 
we understand the students, we build a really effective caring environment, and we like hit the ground running with school and do this together. I think that's a really powerful combination for students as well. I think it's a beautiful point too, because it really, and you're just talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You, of course, we have to take care of their social emotional health and make sure that, you know, food and shelter and safety are taken care of and they feel loved. But also to your point about making sure that academics are at play, you know, it is the thing that, you know, makes students purpose-driven and helps them to self-actualize. And so that combination is probably deeply important to make sure we get it right on all different levels. Well. This has been an amazing conversation. I appreciate so much you taking the time to talk with me and to just share your perspective. It's so interesting to see technology intersecting with education in such an important way. And I think it's really could provide some game-changing, well, probably already has, and and continue to really change the game in education in, in America. So thank you so much for sharing all that you think about and know about today with us. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for listening to my conversation with the CEO of Panorama, Erin Pier. I'm excited by the intersection of technology and education and for the future of how teachers, administrators, students, families, and city leaders will use it to improve and shape the future of education in America. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.